Welcome to episode 69 of Paper Talk, a series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the field of hand paper making and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert Studio, a hand paper making studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also host the annual Red Cliff Paper Retreat and Paper Making Masterclasses here in the studio, and I teach online classes about paper, light, and books too. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. Today I'm talking with Paula Beardell Krieg, an artist and educator who uses paper for drawings, decoration, and building. She loves to explore the internal structure of books, including the patterns of folds, the sewing and knotting of bindings, and how everything fits together. Krieg's work lies at the intersection of art and math, using color and line to illuminate symmetries and geometry in and on paper. Math really has less to do with numbers and more to do with the way one thing is related to another thing. She often collaborates with classroom teachers to design projects for arts and education classes and writes about her work in classrooms, as well as her own adventures with paper, on her blog, bookzumpa.wordpress.com. Enjoy our conversation. Well, Paula Krieg, welcome to Paper Talk. I am so happy to be here and talking to you in person over Zoom. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's great. It's great. And uh, we've known each other a long time. We'll get into that. But um, let's start by uh, just want to hear a little bit about where you grew up and your artistic pursuits during childhood, if there were any. Well, you know, as I'm getting older, I'm thinking more and more about how those first years influenced the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And I I find myself thinking about that more and more. And it's been an interesting thought process, especially after I've been teaching for so long, because at some point in my teaching, I realized that children I had the most impact on and I really feel like I had impact on them or ones that I taught when they were quite young young children are so impressionable and if you get a chance to make an impression at a young age it can stay with them through their life I always remember liking to make things Uh I spent a lot of time with my grandmother when I was quite young and she was a seamstress. She was the uh, daughter of a Lebanese immigrant. She came over when she was eight years old or, or quite young, maybe five, and made a wonderful life for herself. Mm. One of the things that uh, my grandfather had, my grandmother was married off at 15, which was a uh, common then. And She's married a wonderful man, my grandfather, and they had a dry goods store in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And she was a seamstress and she was always making something. So I saw that making of things from a very early age and it really always resonated with me. I had My father gave me a book at one point that was called the uh, Big McCall's Make It Book. And in it, there was like page after page of things you could do. And 
unfortunately, most of them you needed some special materials for, but I, I could, I spent a lot of time with it and I would always try to find something to make. And, you know, I had rubber cement and I had paper, but I didn't have much else, but I can make things. Now that's actually interesting because I think you're reminding me that I would go through books and um, now I think I'm more resourceful and can figure out, oh, I could use this instead of that. But back then I think I would pass by things. Oh, I don't have that. I can't make that. Did you do that or did you start figuring out substitutes? Do you think? I, I don't remember at that time figure, being able to figure out substitutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't remember being able to do that. Mm-hmm. I should look through that book again because actually I found a copy of it and I have one downstairs. And I don't know. I'm going to go back and see if it could, are there more things that I could have done? Not sure. <laughs> There was, there was also a woman who lived next door to me, Mrs. Carter, uh-huh. and her children were older than me. And I was pretty much a loner as, as a young kid. My, my, most of the kids in the neighborhood were either younger or older than me. And of course, the older kids didn't want me around. And so I thought that I should shun the younger kids because that's what the older kids did. It was, it was too bad because, uh, or maybe it's just the way it was. So I did a lot of reading and a lot of making. And there was this woman next door, Mrs. Carter, whose children were older than me, but she would let me come over and she would, I remember her ironing and there was a toy that she had. It was a spirograph Mm -hmm. and it was, it it was like this uh, square red metal contraption with the ears on it. It it wasn't afraid, sort of like a red plate that had gears attached on top of it and and gears that you put on the side and I would spend hours and hours and hours there's something and and I would make I was very young but I think I made beautiful things at least they were beautiful to me and I that really stayed with me those images really stayed with me and I I continue to this day seek out those images in different ways, these cycles and rotations and try to understand them deeply. So, so that was, that was pretty um, influential to me. Yeah. Yeah. Just sitting with books, I would sit on the, the floor of my parents' house and they had books there on the bookshelves and I would look through trying to make things. There was this one mathematics book in this time life series that had things you could do with math, right? They had Mobius strips. Do you, do you, are you familiar with Mobius yeah, strips? Sure. Mm-hmm. You say, yeah, sure. But recently I've started teaching them to kids and you know, seventh, eighth graders, and they don't know what they are. Mm-hmm. And it's, it blows my mind they don't know what they are. And there's so many things you can do with them. So there's a lot of exposures to things that I'm still exploring now that were influential back then. Right. So just in case listeners don't know what a Mobius strip is, describe it briefly. It's a, this is how I tell uh, seventh and eighth graders what it is. And they don't believe me. Uh-huh. It's a piece of paper. So it's a, it's a, it's a ring that is, you make out of paper and it only has one side. You would think that a ring of paper would have an inside and outside like a ring. 
but it has only one side. And then I go around to prove it to them by drawing a line from the starting and it ends up touching every surface of the paper, both sides of it and comes back to the beginning. And it turns out there's things that you can do with Mobius strips that are pretty magical that hurt kids brains when they see them. <laughs> and it's such a, it's such a satisfying exploration to show them things that can happen with paper that are completely unexpected that seem pretty magical. And yeah, I sort of, um, I sort of indulge myself in the theater and the dramatics of paper whenever I can. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can hear your excitement. So let's move along to uh, uh, what did you, what you, where you went to college and what you studied and how you got into formal book arts. <laughs> I, I didn't ever think, I always, like I said, I was always a maker mm -hmm. and I always made things, I always drew. I love drawing still. I was doing some drawings last night and I love drawing still. I, I also was a pretty good student. I was a voracious reader. I didn't do very well in typing mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and French was pretty hard for me too, but everything else was fine. It just, that school for me was, it took up my time. I always wanted to be doing something and I had to be scheduled. I couldn't wait to get out of school, but I also couldn't wait to get out of town <laughs> by the time I finished <laughs> high school. So I was very happy to go to college. I started out at Rutgers University. I didn't think I was going to be going into art, but it turns out they had an incredibly vibrant math department, uh, not math department, uh, art department. I thought I was going to study math because I like math. I didn't, I just, math always just felt good to me. And, but I didn't have a great math background. So when I got to college at Douglas College in Rutgers University in New Jersey. I took a calculus class because I figured, you know, that's what you take next. I had no idea what was going on. I just, none, zero. Right. And nobody was mentoring me and I never had any trouble in school before. So I didn't know to ask for help. Right. I just didn't, that wasn't even in my radar. Uh -huh. And I, I pretty much failed or got a D the first semester. And I still signed up for the second semester. I just figured I'd, I'd try harder. Mm -hmm. And knowing what I know now, that was completely foolish. But I also had no idea what was going on. In the, in the meantime, there were these graduate students in the art department that were just amazing who just lit a fire under me with art. And so even though the, the math sort of faded into the background, it didn't matter because there's this incredible artistic energy that I got plugged into, no bookmaking. It was ceramics and it was painting, but it really made me, it really turned my attention away. So, and I was very happy to have my attention turned away because it was just so vibrant. So were you taking art classes? Like how did you cross paths with these graduate students? Well, I, I, was, taking art, I was taking art classes. I always liked art. It, even in Morristown High School where I went to, 
there was there was a uh, a house. There was a house, an old house, right next door to the school. Now, this is a long time ago, where where it was an open campus. Like you didn't, if you weren't in class, mm-hmm. you could just walk into town. You could go downstairs and outside and hang out in the smoking area. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and there was an art building. We had a whole building and I was always in the art building. And there was this wonderful man in the art building, uh, Art Gunther. His name was Art Gunther. He, he was also, he, he worked at the high school, but he was also the art teacher when I was in second grade in Morris Plains, New Jersey. And one day I was drawing, this is one of those things that just stay with you for the rest of your life. One day I was drawing a little scene, you know, the grass and the house and the clouds. And I wanted to draw my clouds blue. And I was very nervous about it because because I'd been to a Catholic school and if you didn't draw just the way they told you to, you didn't get an extra slide down the slide. You were punished if you didn't, right? So I raised, rose my hand and he came over and, you know, little girl on this little table and he gets all the way down. And I said to him, can I draw my cloud blue? And he says, this is your drawing. I don't get to tell you what to do. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I have used that line a lot. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so he was in the art building. So I had a connection to art. Yeah. I just didn't take it seriously. I didn't think it was a serious thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of misconceptions about a lot of things that life has, uh, life has laughed at me. <laughs> well, and society doesn't help in terms of art being a viable career, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. that art's understandable. Right, yeah. right. So yeah, so I was taking so I was taking art classes, like of course I was taking art classes, and then it just my my whole attention shift. I ended up feeling very much like uh there was that feeling of I just want more time to myself. I just need more time for myself. I, I you know school really does guide you so much and create such a structure for your time. And I have never been comfortable in this, in that structure. Um, This is, this is a quote I saw the other day that I just, that I just saw it the other day and I was like, Oh yeah, I get this. Mm -hmm. And it's a quote by Khalil Gibran who his Lebanese, like I'm Lebanese. And actually my grandmother met him when Mm -hmm. she was a young woman uh, but she had babies and he was, from what I understand, was very taken with her, but she, she went back to her babies. Anyhow, the, the, what, uh, what he said is they deem me mad because I will not sell my days for gold. And I deem them mad because they think my day, my days have a price. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And because of that, my life hasn't been, you know, incredibly lucrative, but that's not what my focus has been. My focus has been to do the work that I want to do. Mm-hmm. So, so after two years of being in Douglas, I actually, which was it, wonderful grad students, but the, 
the teachers there were like an old boys club, which is kind of odd because it was an all girls school. Yeah. Douglas, that was the, the, the all girl part of Rutgers University. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm getting restless here. And I'm just restless in general. And I took a year off. I did a lot of things in that year. Then I reapplied to schools. So after two years at Douglas, I year off. And then I started school at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. And I was there for two and a half years uh, there. And so going to New York City had never been in my dreams mm-hmm. by any means. But it ended up being what, what, where I was. And I ended up staying there for, I think, about 17 years. So, Hi. and um, tell me about the v- School of Visual Arts because I took some classes there, just continuing ed sort of classes. But it's such an interesting school. With I think all of the instructors there are professional working artists. That's one of their things, and they actually have like uh, degree programs too. Or yeah, they had just when I got there, and this will. Uh, I, I'll save you doing crunching the numbers. So I'm 64 years old okay. and I graduated from there in 1979. Okay. The, I had uh, Jackie Windsor, Richard Van Buren, and probably most famous uh, Elizabeth Murray mm. as teachers. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Murray turns out she has a, had a place. Her family still owns it. Uh, uh, just a few miles from here, so uh, from where I live here in upstate New York, mm-hmm. so I I became friendly with her. Yeah. Afterwards, actually, I came across one of my old transcripts, and she said, and it, and she had given me A's, and I told her that, and she said, Paula, I didn't give out many A's, cool. <laughs> but 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 those were wonderful influences to have. Yeah. I don't think. I don't think they really had their act together in, in terms of accredited education, although they were accredited like brand new, mm-hmm. but it wasn't very, it wasn't tight. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad I was at Rutgers because I got the uni- school, the university experience. Right. When I lit having a city campus with no housing, I I lived in New Jersey the first year with my parents, went back and forth. So I didn't get the college experience there. And I was always working too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I eventually moved into New York City, but I would work all weekend so I could pay my rent and uh, and food and and that sort of thing. So so it was a it was it was an interesting place to be because of New York City. Mm-hmm. But it was also a tough place to be because the the teachers weren't really invested in the kids. At least I didn't feel like a lot of them were. I mean, I think Elizabeth was, Jackie Windsor was just amazing. Richard Van Buren, like I said, I remember him. And this other woman who, uh, Cora Kennedy, who was a photography teacher, she was amazing. And she was amazing. And I did a lot of photography, got really connected to photography for a while, which, which sort of got into my, DNA or something. Mm-hmm. And I still feel very comfortable with cameras. I, I, it's really helped me out with my blog because I think my blog is very beautiful. And I think I, I've been able to trans transfer into the digital world, transfer what I learned about photography from her. And it, it made me very comfortable. So, yeah, so there was, there was definitely a lot of good things. 
it's, I just ended up staying in New York. I uh, didn't make any books at that point. I, you know, actually, at the very end, I was making books. I wanted to, I, I don't remember for what class, but I made a bunch of books, you know, with rubber cement. Uh, and I remember that, yeah. <laughs> with rubber cement and um, pieces of scrap material I had around. And the subject of my earliest books before I knew anything about bookbinding were generally sequences and transformations. Mm -hmm. So specifically, uh, specifically things that continue to double oh. and, or, or, or graphs that were, uh, that were transformed, that were skewed and layered. So, uh, but I didn't have enough math in me. I, I, I didn't have enough. I definitely did not have enough math in me to continue working that way. Uh, so the sort of the math kind of fell away. There was still a connection with numbers that always surfaced and resurfaced and resurfaced until, until I sort of we caught up with each other. And, uh, but that's, probably later on in the story <laughs> or maybe not. I don't know. Well, I we need to move along. So um, yeah. So, well, so what happened next in terms of. So then, so then I was in New York city. I, I got a loft in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. I, my place was a wreck as it was being, as I was, as I was slowly renovating it and I would make little books because I only had a little tiny space to work in. And again, it was like the rubber cement thing, but I, and the, just the cloth. And finally this uh, friend of mine said to me, I, her name was Mary, her, her name's Mary Creek. And she said to me, for which I'm always grateful, you should take classes at the Center for Book Arts. Mm -hmm. I said, okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they were down at the Bowery at that time. Yeah. And I took classes and that was incredibly influential. You know, taking, Heidi Kyle was teaching uh, bookbinding too, which was, I think, 12 weeks, three hours a night. I mean, amazing. There was a couple nights I actually missed because I was just too tired. I can't believe it. But she was, but there's something about the way she taught. I, I understand why everybody loves her. She, you just get drawn in. Yeah. And yeah, so I, I started, I started taking classes there. I took a lot of classes there. From there, I connect was able to connect with Mindel Dubansky and volunteer at the Metropolitan Museum of Art so I could continue bookmaking that's where I met Susan Share but let me tell you about how I first came across Susan Share because she's a big part of my bookmaking journey okay and let me just say that Susan Share is uh, another book artist who we both know and she actually uh, she we have a previous episode with her on paper talk yeah. That's awesome. I can't wait to hear that. Yeah. So I was in Soho, Atlantic Gallery. I believe it was Atlantic Gallery, had a upstairs gallery there and they had a show and I went to see the show and I saw this work by Susan Cher. And as soon as I saw the work, it just spoke to me. It's mm -hmm. like, I want to be friends with this person. 
I just, boom, it's just, I mean, I just like fell in love. Uh-huh. And, I, and so I started looking for her. And I remember the first time I saw her when she walked into the Center for Book Arts. But she also, so I was volunteering at the Met with Mindell, and then Susan was also volunteering at the Met. And we we got to know each other. And it, it was her that, that got me into teaching. And we have now over the years taught around each other a lot and we've co-taught a lot and we're, we have more teaching that we're going to do together coming up. We're planning now. And it's great because Zoom is great because she lives in Alaska. I live in New York and we're going to be able to teach a class together via Zoom. How cool yeah, is that? Amazing. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, I had a similar introduction to Susan because I was dabbling in books and paper and um, I met Doug Bube, who's another book artist, mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. he actually photographed some of my early work and he said, you should meet Susan Cher. <laughs> and then I like glommed onto her and asked her if I could be her assistant at Penland and yada, yada. Yeah. Oh, you were, I was, I was her assistant at Penland recently, (laughs) two years ago, two years ago, I was her assistant. It was great. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So Susan was already teaching in different programs in New York city. Is that, and then you sort of got involved. That's right. And it was her recommendation that got me involved in teaching for Franklin furnace archives. They had, they had, programs in the school. So I jumped in feet first. I just jumped into that program and it worked out for me that the the people that I worked with liked the work that I did with the kids and they would keep asking me back and I would do these amazing projects with them, bookmaking projects with them. And it worked out. One of the, one of the funniest things I, I remember was working in a, a school in Chinatown mm-hmm. and the, a lot of the kids, English wasn't their first language. And I would say, I would say something to them about what we would be doing. They made beautiful stuff. I took lots of photographs even back then. And the teacher would stand next to me and she would repeat to them what I said in English. I said it in English. She said it in English, but they would need to hear it from her. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. Cool. So I, I so that was that was very important that I did start doing the teaching because I started collecting a lot of materials. There was jam paper that was this sort of like warehousey kind of place. I think that's where we'd get a lot of book cloth, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then there, I made a con- wonderful connection with this guy Abbott, who of Admiral Envelopes, who would print, who would use uh, specialty papers that designers would send him. He would make the run of envelopes and have the paper left over. So he had tons and tons of paper, and he was very generous, and he just gave me, me and Susan lots of paper, and that made it that made it very doable to do these very ambitious projects with kids right but then I moved up to New York what's that you had uh free materials I had free materials and so I could do really ambitious things Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because back then paper was very expensive and hard to come by 
like it sort of has becoming now, unfortunately. There's been a, it's been sort of full circle. Yeah. But that was really important because doing that, because when I moved here to upstate New York, I, I uh, had all my supplies with me and I could start offering classes up here. I, I felt compelled to because I had so much stuff with me. Right. And so what what uh, what caused you to move upstate? You got um, married. I got married, and I got married, and I a few months into the marriage, I got pregnant, uh-huh. which which was which was not exactly according to plan. I mean, eventually it was going to happen, right. and then I had no idea. I had no idea how much time having a baby <laughs> takes. Up. We don't know until we do it. I know <laughs> it's really a shocker. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And I had always worked, and so here I was in upstate New York, and I wasn't working for the first time. Mm. And I didn't realize that when you don't work, you don't get money. I just never made that connection. I'm not very good at those things. Like I never really understood that when you were pregnant, you'd actually have a baby. They just, they just didn't connect. And then you have a baby and it actually has needs. Uh Um, Yeah. So I can be really slow about some things. So I, I didn't know how to do anything up here, but I did end up, I, I was pretty desperate to do something. Uh, for lots of reasons. One is that I wanted to keep making work, keep keep making art, mm-hmm. and I I uh, needed money to buy supplies. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I could write grants. I wrote grants for years, every year, to run my own book arts program at the library. So New York State's Council for the Arts decentralization money really kept me afloat. I, I would come out even after paying assistance, because I had so many kids come to the to the classes and materials, but it didn't matter that I and, and babysitters. So I would actually come out in the red, but but it, it kept me going. It kept my it kept me into it. So I have a but question was, about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were you writing grants for yourself or for the library? Like it was, did the money go through the library or? Yeah, actually, it's actually because of the way things are in my town, it actually went through the town. But yes, it was under the library was under the town and I was in there, too. So I'd have to. So it was. was, Yeah. So it was the library. Yeah, that's that sort of explains it in a bad way. But okay, And and I just want to if you don't mind sharing, it sounds like you weren't paying yourself. Like I tried to, tried to. I put myself in the budget okay. each time, uh-huh. but I would always overspend on materials, mm-hmm. which was just fine with me. Mm-hmm. It got it. Just my goal at that point was to to have materials available to me, and to just keep working. And I did keep working. It was very challenging, especially with a baby and then babies at home to, to this many times a year with 16 classes a year, I would teach 
uh, eight in the spring and eight in the fall. It, uh, it was really good for me to constantly be designing classes. And there's nothing like doing the work to, to grow. I mean, you have to just keep doing it. That's why I, I worked at the, volunteered at the Metropolitan. And that's why I, I did this work. And it's been, it, it's hard to, it was very hard for me all through my children growing up to do my own work because because I had to work, but I, I worked in the school, so that kept me going. And both of my children, as well as my husband, have dyslexia. So my husband doesn't read and write at all, wow. which puts a lot of stress on me. Yeah, But he's worth it. He's totally worth it. <laughs> and uh, he does a lot of other things. But I didn't know anything about dyslexia when I got married. Mm-hmm. I just figured ah, something happened to him when he was trying to learn to read. I figured it was an emotional thing. I didn't know it was a hereditary thing, mm-hmm. which I was soon to find out the hard way. Right. And anybody who's had children who have special learning needs and are in a school system that doesn't care mm. knows just how much that takes out of yeah. That it just ha- having to constantly advocate for your children. It was a it was a huge part of my life for so many years. A part that I will never be grateful for. However, my children have done very well, and it really gave me my teeth. You know, I I had to. I knew what what was at stake. And it really made me have to stand up for what I, for the, for my children. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was a, it was, a uh, it was definitely a thing in my life. So, and all those things make you stronger, but I, I could have done without that, I think. But, <laughs> I hear you. but, I hear you. but yeah, but it, it really did form so much of my life. So it's just really in the last few years that I have had the time that I have wanted to explore my own ideas. I've always been able to in one way or the other do it, but now I get to do it more how I want to really see ideas through that I haven't been able to before. Hey listeners, let's take a little break here. And I want to tell you about the paper year, which is going online this year in 2021. This is an annual subscription club, kind of like a year long online class featuring a new paper project every month. Get inspired with video and written project instructions designed to spark ideas that keep you creating for the rest of the month. Explore creative paper techniques, including origami, pop-ups, paper weaving, book arts, paper cutting, and more. And join our growing community of paper lovers online to learn and share in a warm, encouraging, supportive, creative community. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com to find out more and hold your spot. Registration opens again in early April of 2021. So I want to bring in how we met, which you reminded me because I had forgotten, but um, (laughs) a long time ago, we met a long time ago at the Center for Book Arts and Susan (laughs) Share actually was instrumental. Excuse me. And um, so we we came in to the end of a teaching day of yours and 
you showed us this, these techniques that you have, had de developed, which I ended up inviting you to teach at Dudonet Paper Mill where I was working, and then also featured in my book, Paper Illuminated. And we're going to have one of those techniques in my next book as well. So I want to talk more about your design process. You sort of uh, talked about, you mentioned briefly that um, developing these these programs for the kids, you're doing some designing for that. Um, so maybe we'll start with the, these marbling techniques that you, you showed us. Had you done marbling already? And like, how, how did you come up with those? First of all, I, I'm, all, I'm very curious mm -hmm. and I'm always like looking at stuff. And if something captures my attention, I will, I will pursue it. Yeah. So so yeah, I did do paper marbling for a while. I, I had a nervous breakdown every single time I, every single day I did paper marbling. It would just, it was very stressful technique for me. Uh -huh. I took classes at the center for book arts and I, I just, it, you know, anything, any little thing could go wrong. And if, so after a while I just stopped doing paper marbling. It just, it was too emotionally draining for me, but, but this is, the beauty of my time now, but it really is an extension of how I've always been. Mm -hmm. uh, I see something, I love it. I just keep doing it until I've got it figured out. So the, the crayon batik, which is a beautiful technique where you, where you color paper with crayons, you crumple it up, then you put, acrylic paint on it, it gets into all the cracks that you've made, and then you um, iron it or let it dry, something like that. I've got it written down. And it was originally shown to me by someone who was babysitting for me. Uh -huh. uh, she learned it from her art teacher. And I was like, whoa, that's pretty cool. So I did it, I did it and did it. And then this is sort of an interesting thing. And I, I guess I do want to talk about this. When she came back again and I said to her, look, and I, I had like really brought it to another level. Mm -hmm. And she had this sad look on her face. And she said, now I wish I hadn't shown you. Oh. And I understand where she was coming from, but that's not the way to be in the world. Yes. We learn from each other because then she could have taken what I just showed her mm -hmm. and she could have raised it to another level. Right. And it's that kind of support that I'm always looking for. Uh, one of the, one of my, one of my side things, and I won't give too much time to this because it's not really on, on subject was I left New York city for a little while. I just had to get out and I ended up going down to North Carolina to a place called the Nantale Outdoor Center. And I, I worked there. I worked in the, I worked first as just cleaning the cabins. And then in subsequent years, I wor worked as one of their staff photographers. Mm -hmm. And I learned how to kayak. Mm -hmm. And I really went after doing whitewater kayaking for a while. And I, I loved it. And I, I was, had no talent, but everybody was there supporting me. Mm 
there was this, especially women, which is was wonderful. That uh, it's there was a lot of really strong, smart women there, and they wanted to see me succeed, just as much because then we could all be better together. Yeah. So, so that has that has sort of made me want to teach and share even more. It's like it's when when I can teach something, and give it to somebody, they come back to it, bring something of theirs, and then it, we can just keep building on it. I also. Actually- I love the analogy you just made to the outdoor center because um, it's kind of like I'm thinking like, because I swam in college. I had never done anything competitive, but I joined the swim team just because someone I knew was doing it. And I was like terrible at first, but I got better over time. And it's swimming is an individual sport, which kayaking too. So you might be on a team, but you're really trying to just better yourself within it. So I like that analogy mm-hmm. to art and to cheering each other on also. So you are kind of on a team. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it influences that kind of thinking influences uh, everything about my life. I, I am, I want to be inclusive. Mm-hmm. I want, I, I want there to be an embrace. I know in fact we are better together. Mm-hmm. It's it's the way that I live my life, and I it's it's just so yeah. So that's how so that that got us on how that I did the paper marbling. I, I on the crayon batik. I think I just I, I don't know how I did the uh, the the bubble. I don't know remember where I came across it, but it was the same thing that I read about it. I tried it. It was terrible. I just kept working at it and figuring it out. Like one of the one of the important things about bubble marbling is that you shouldn't use a rectangular uh, tray, like a lasagna right. tray, because the shape of the bubbles are circular. Like nobody writes this stuff down, right? I don't even know if people know this, but it was it became clear to me that I needed a small circular vessel to blow the bubbles into so so i'm really curious about that is that because the way the bubbles would pop or form or both i think it's the way that they would be supported so so a a straight line doesn't support them in the way a circular one does right 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 so I, I can't tell you about anything about the physics or the science of it but i can tell you after lots of experimentation yeah that that that's what happens. So what often happens with me is I'll find an idea, I'll work it and work it and work it until I crack it and I figure it out. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of lose interest because mm-hmm. I'm on to the next, because I'm on to the next thing. So it's yeah. wonderful when I find something that will hold my interest for a very long time that, that I, I, uh, I look for things that I cannot crack easily. Yeah, I feel the same way. And I actually studied math and art in college, but I spent my junior year in Germany and the math was just beyond me then. So I, I, I stopped the math and just continued in art. Yeah. Uh. I think that there's a lot more of us than, than uh, one would think. I, I'd actually read a few things about a couple of different artists that came out of Rutgers, that came out of Douglas, who went in doing math and came out doing art. 
Mm-hmm. So I, there's something going on there. I'm, I, I'm not sure what it is. Yeah. But I, I think it's something that I think about. Yeah, it's, well, it has something to do with uh, puzzles, I think, and figuring things out. And um, that's common to math and some forms of art, the kind we do. Okay, so I want to get to talking a little bit about the papers you like and your wonderful blog. When did you start your blog and what's the address? It's bookzoompa.wordpress.com. But probably the best way to find me is just to put in Paula Krieg. That's K-R-I-E-G. And there's plenty of uh, there's plenty of links that'll take you to my blog, bookzumpa.wordpress.com. So I started the blog probably 11 years ago. I think it's 11 years ago. And I did it because I was lonely. Mm-hmm. Here I'd been doing all this work in all of these schools for all of these years. And nobody knew, except for the people who were right in front of me, nobody knew what I was doing. Right. And I always took photographs, but I had no one to share them with. And even the teachers in the next classroom from where I was teaching didn't have any idea of what I was doing. So I started it because I I wanted people to see what I was doing. I thought it was wonderful work. And I knew I had a lot to say and a lot to share. And I didn't want, I just didn't want it to let it go unsaid. So I, I got a, it was very hard at first because I didn't have internet much at my house and I would go to the library and it, it, there was a big learning curve and it was incredibly inconvenient. And I, I, if there were mistakes in the blog and typos, which, like I said, I, I didn't do very well in typing in high school. It has followed me. Oh. I, I, ha- I, I couldn't correct the mistakes and it just was what it was. But I, I, um, but there are things that I, I post that, that I, that I, that every single day that I, well, every single day I get hundreds of views and one of my very first blog posts was uh, about the origami pamphlet, the eight-page book, People Call Zines. Mm-hmm. And I checked this morning. And this morning, four people looked at that blog, right? This morning before 10 o'clock. Yeah. And that doesn't sound like a lot for people before 10 o'clock. But you think about that every single day that happens yeah. for the last 11 years. Right. Right. So that that has thousands of accumulated views. Mm -hmm. I feel very good about the fact that this all this work is out in the world. I I love being able to share it. I never felt like, oh, if I share this, then I'll be out of work. That doesn't happen. No. Mm. And it's it's enabled me to have a lot of connection with other people mm-hmm. and the way that I think about things like for instance the uh, you know folding paper making books it's all about it's all about how does this relate to that and how does this relate to that so by the time you're done it's I mean I, I think do you think a lot about scale have do you scale things 
frequently when you're doing I, your things? Like you may- I do. And I actually um, wanted to be an architect for a while. So I think I learned about scale in a drafting class maybe. And just yesterday, a student was asking me how to scale a lantern that we're doing in this online class I'm teaching. And I haven't actually done it. So I'm not positive it will work because sometimes things don't work how you uh, imagine. But I have a feeling it will if she scales it exactly. So I was kind of giving her how to do that. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, um, so any, so these are skill. These are things that I've always thought about when mm-hmm. I'm doing my work, especially when I'm making things with kids and doing projects after projects after projects. And so, um, oh, so now I forgot about where I was going with that. I'm sitting here thinking about uh, your your student's lantern. <laughs> That's okay. Um, but I, you know, I know where I could go with that, which is, which is this work that I've done in the schools with kids mm-hmm. and which I feel very fortunate that I've been able to, uh, to uh, have lots of schools, uh, have lots of schools call me and have me work with their kids. And I guess we started off talking about the blog. I don't think, it, so I, I was, I wanted to, there to be a record of these fabulous projects I did with kids. And then I think because of the blog, more places were more comfortable with asking me to come or they'd be reminded of, of me. So the blog has been good for me in terms of being able to continue to be out there in the world. And I, I, I love the, I love the dialogue that it, that helps create. And Eventually, being in the schools for so long, I was, and having children who are dyslexic, Mm -hmm. I was always very aware of the, of the connection of books and literacy, Mm -hmm. and how making books would inspire kids to do their best writing, Mm -hmm. and how having, having a connection with books was a very good thing. But over time, I realized that literacy really is the bread and butter of the teaching of the younger grades. And most of the teachers that I worked with were great at teaching literacy. Mm-hmm. But they were, they struggled with the math. Mm-hmm. And over time, I began to see that I could be more relevant if the way that I taught had more to do with thinking about things in a mathematical way. Now, this doesn't mean that I was teaching anything about using numbers. Right. Because as my own children grew up and I followed them through math and tried to revisit it in a way that when I got to calculus again, I would be more oriented. I realized that math really has less to do with numbers and more to do with the way one thing is related to another thing. Right. And in there is 
in 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 there is all sorts of uh, things about scale and just a lot of uh, just a lot of things that are really fascinating that if you can get a handle on it, it allows you to do so much more like your student who wants to make a smaller lantern right if you understand how to scale something mm -hmm. you can do whatever you want mm -hmm. and lots of relationships are not are not obvious but if you can understand them it empowers you and that's what I'm all about is trying to make people be able to do stuff. Cause the more you can do things, the more you can sort of like hold on to your life, the, the better your life is going to be. Yeah. One of the kids, one, one school, I, one school I was in recently, uh, well, recently before the pandemic uh, was this, this one girl, she, kept saying would you help me or I can't do this or she knew that we'd come around and help her right mm -hmm. uh and finally you know I really was getting there's I think maybe there's a couple of kids like that they just was like oh and I finally stopped the class and I said okay this is what I want you to know Someone will generally help you when you need help. But you go through life that way, not even trying, just knowing that someone's going to help you. You go through life that way. And what happens is you become, you, be, it, you become dependent on someone else being there to do it for you. And your life then is no longer your own. And I really want kids to be able to do for themselves, at least try it. Yeah. And they surprise themselves. Another thing that somebody told me that, again, is so important to me, and I, I think these things are important to say. I, uh, a mother was complaining that uh, her, my son who was visiting her, he, she just wouldn't he wouldn't seem to get what she was asking him to do when, when he was visiting. Mm -hmm. And I asked one of my son's friends who also is like a slow processor in some ways, both very bright kids, but their processing speeds are just different. And I was like, how do I, how do I deal with this? And this kid said to me, well, the first thing I would do is say, what do you remember? What do you, how, what do you know about what I just said? Or what do you think might be next? And boom, wow. I have used that so much with so many kids. Who's like, I don't know what to do. And I was like, well, what do you know what to do? Mm -hmm. And before you know it, they've done it. Right. And yes, right? empowerment is so, yeah, important. Yeah, yeah. that's really important. Hmm. Okay. So, so I do the blog and there's all sorts of things people can, can do on them. And I love that. Yeah. And everybody check out Paula's blog because it is just filled with um, information, tutorials, templates, and also your reflections about 
and your excitement and enthusiasm about how you figure things out. I, I love it. I love it. Thank um, you. Yeah. So um, this is paper talk. I want to hear about some papers that you <laughs> enjoy working with. Do you have some favorites? You know, it depends what I'm working on. Yeah. The paper thing, and I definitely have some papers I'm going to, I'm going to call out by name, but the paper thing has been such a frustrating thing over the years. Mm -hmm. At first I couldn't find papers, but I was given papers. And then all of a sudden paper was everywhere. The, all of a sudden staples opened home, you know, all sorts of places opened and I could get paper wherever I wanted. There was a place in Albany, not, which is not that far from me. It's 60 miles, but it was not that far from me that um, I can't remember their name now, but there was a warehouse of paper and I would drive down there and I would like get these big pieces of paper. I get little smaller papers. I mean, I would get so much stuff and that's completely changed. So many places that I bought paper from, including that one, have are no longer around. Even staples, they don't have the same papers and packages of papers. And it's harder to find the papers that I want. And the price of paper has tripled in many ways. Many of the papers I've used have truly tripled. And it's been it's been a real tough journey because the the paper landscape keeps changing. And you're uh, that's about you're and these are mostly um, office type papers that are in different colors. Well there's that. Uh -huh. There's that, but then there's other papers like one of the papers that uh, so many classes like to use and I sh probably should have never showed it to them. <laughs> but it, it makes these exquisite books. And I am into making using good materials with kids because the, they make things that they really keep and I want them to be gorgeous. And there's a, there's a, on my blog, there's this examples of student work page. There's a lot of these made with this black paper. Okay, I make books out of this too. It's it's not a kid's paper. And let's see, I'm gonna shuffle around. I said, um, it's by Nina, which makes expensive papers. And it's epic black, it's black paper. It's 80 linen cover. Okay. Every so often I buy the great, the whole big, box of really big sheets of it and actually needed some some another uh infusion of it at the beginning of my last teaching season mm -hmm. so it was, it was over four hundred dollars for the case right. of this big paper and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to raise my rates to to cover this and I did and everybody was fine with it and then everybody canceled because of the pandemic. So I've got a lot of this black paper around, which is fine. Hopefully it'll come back, yeah. Hopefully it'll come back. And, but also uh, then I'm finding actually figuring out other things to do uh, with it. Sure. So that's, so that's fine. So, uh, so again, it's, it's so much of what I'm doing 
Uh, I love that. That's a, it's a beautiful paper uh, to check out. You don't have to buy it in $500 increments. Another paper that I, I find myself going back to all the time for sort of a decorative kind of look, and this has a real, real kind of uh, zing to it, is I use a lot of Star Dreams paper. Mm. Do you know the Star Dream paper? Yeah. Uh, I, get that, I, I get that from a place called Cut Card Stock. And I get it in different weights. And Star and I, is a, like a metallic -y. Yeah, it's a metallic-y, shimmery paper. So, so if I want to do something that, you know, really has a, 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 I'll use it in sometimes in kits that I sell on Etsy. I've started doing some selling on Etsy. I, mm. I, it's just, which has sort of been fun. Yeah. I, that's a, another whole story. Or if I want to do something with kids that have, has, it folds nicely in the different weights, uh, the, the lightweight folds nicely, the heavier weight scores nicely. It's just a beautiful paper to use. So I find myself coming back to that a lot. Uh, another paper that I work with a lot is the Strathmore 24 pound writing paper with 25% cotton. I get that directly from Strathmore. I use the eight and a half by 11 and the 11 by 17. And I use that because I like that because I like the feel of it. I like the way it folds and I like the way it accepts color in my copy machine. Mm. So a lot of the work I've been doing over the last few years has been creating designs on paper, which I then use in the folding in, in folded structures that I use right. specifically, mostly the Chinese thread book, but not just the Chinese thread book. Like I, I'll make flexagons and other kinds of folded structures. I love folding paper and I will, and I love creating different designs to put on this paper. And so anyhow, this, this is what this, the Strathmore is what I use that for. And don't you think when, that the design making goes back to the spirograph? There's a tie in there. There's definitely a tie in there. The, 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 I'm not what I, what making those same kind of patterns. Yeah. Probably making different patterns, but. It's making, I, I do both. Okay. So uh, the, the, what I found when I started teaching the, the Chinese thread book, the Zhen Zhen Bao mm -hmm. a number of years ago, be, and I hope to be to, teaching a lot more of that uh, soon. I realized that actually the very first place that I taught it was at the, was a, a professional development day at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in the bindery mm -hmm. that Mindell Devansky is still the head of. And she invited me to, to do a professional development day there. And I did, now of course I'm working with these amazing book binders. Yeah. And I did with them in one day, which I could do with no other group in one day. Right. There's no question, but I was surprised with even this group that there there was a difficulty in creating in, in making the folds and exactly the way I needed them to make them and so what I started so what I, before I taught the next class that I taught it of the Chinese thread book I created papers based on Islamic geometry which is just exquisite designs but I could scale them and work with them so that 
the lines of the designs would line up to where the people needed to create the folds. And that if they created the folds correctly, the design would line up nicely when it was done. So it was like using these papers and they're so beautiful. It was like having a helper in the room with me. Yeah. Wow. Right. So So, important. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. Right. And under this line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. So uh, I use the Strathmore paper for that. And, but when I'm making my own um, Chinese thread books, Mm -hmm. like I really want to make a good quality thing. I mean, like a high, something a little, a little step up. Mm -hmm. Uh, I use, my favorite paper. I, I don't even know how to pronounce it, so I'm going to spell it. I get it from Talus. Uh-huh. Okay. It's J-O-H-A-N-N-O-T. And it's 125 uh, GSM. Okay. Johanna paper. Johanna. Yeah, something. Do you something know like that. From? What's that? It's from another country, probably. Probably. Sure. No, I don't know where it's I from. Know. I just know that it's from Talos. I think yeah. it grows it grows in Talos. Is an amazing bookbinding supply company in Brooklyn. Yeah. Right, and they're wonderful about when I order paper from them. It comes mm-hmm. or book cloth. The the Asahi book cloth is what I really enjoy getting from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that comes really fast, beautifully packaged. I'm always so happy with anything that I get from Talas. It's T-A-L-A-S, which I always forget. Talas Online. So anybody who wants paper should definitely look at everything that they have. Yeah, they carry a lot of handmade paste papers and other decorative papers. Elephant Hide is a fun paper that folds really well too. Okay, do you have any other papers? Because then I want to get to your other recommendations and we need to. Okay, elephant hide would be in there too. I've got a ton of elephant hide paper. I use it all the time because it folds so nicely. So, but that's that's the, that's my, those are my top favorite papers. And I do like office supply papers and I use them in schools all the time too. You know, regular stuff that you buy off the shelves at Staples. Right, awesome. Okay, and then let's go to your other recommendations. I know you had some different tools to share. So like your- uh... Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, um, you, I, you asked that if I had any recommendation. I was like, God, there's just so much. What, 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 could I, what would I recommend? And I, I really thought about it. And uh, there are some things that I think anybody everybody starting out should make sure that they have and not wait to get them. Mm -hmm. The one thing that one sort of larger tool that I have that I've had all my life, it seems is a light box. And the reason I have always had a light box is because my dad worked at a place in New Jersey that went out that closed down that section of their place. He was one of the last people there that was still working they were throwing out lots and lots of stuff. And he saw a light box in a dumpster. Mm-hmm. And light boxes can be pretty expensive. I think the prices are going down now with LEDs. Mm-hmm. But he brought that light box home for me. I, I was probably still in grade school. 
-hmm. I still use it. Last night I was using it. I have used that. Is it big? What's that? Is it pretty large? It was, it's a, it's, um, it's, it's, um, you can't, you can't tell if I do that. Um, yeah, it was, it's pretty big. It's about, um, oh, 24 by, uh, 18, something like that. Yes, yeah. yeah. So it's a nice size. Yeah. Uh, although little ones are good too. If yeah. you can, I have a little one. I, I, I'll do any, li any light box is good. Do you, do you use it all the time? Do you use your light box frequently? I do not use it all the time. I pull it out occasionally okay. and I get mad because I can't figure, where did I put it? I, I, I get frustrated because I can't find it. Um, That's what's good about having big things is you don't lose them so often. <laughs> it's built in. Yeah. 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 Um, no, I use that. I use that all the time. It's come in handy for so many different things. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, so that's one of the things. And then. Um, another thing is, is one, a, a tool that I've just recently gotten that I, I thought that it would be silly and I didn't need this. And then I got one and it's like, oh, my God, it's just a little um, square. One, it's about a square foot uh, scoring table. And a lot of places make them. A lot of companies make them. They're all about the same. They're plastic. They cost about $20. You get them at Michael's or AC Moore. And they've got grooves about an eighth of an inch apart. And I put papers in there and I score them all the time. And it just saves me so much work and measuring and looking and careful. I just put it in there. I know where I'm going, nice. especially if I'm working to prep for a class and it's maybe it's a young class and I need certain score lines there for them uh, or just things of my own. Mm -hmm. I, I, used, I just use it all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's another, so I just, just get one. I waited too long. It was silly. Um, metal rulers. Mm. I can't have enough metal rollers and you, getting them at the hardware store is a really good idea because they're really heavy. Right. And a bookbinder needs rollers and squares. Uh -huh. They have nice squares at the hardware store. So that's something else. Don't wait. Right. Um, the last thing I, I want to recommend is to get an old fashioned recipe box and have index cards in them. And, you know, life is long. You forget about a lot of things. To ha I have a recipe box that I, things that I know that I'm going to forget, which is a lot of things. I will make notes on how to do it and I will put it in there. And most of the things that are in that recipe box right now have to do with technology. Mm -hmm. So... Like I, I love using Adobe Illustrator and Photoshop, except I don't use Photoshop very much. I use Adobe Illustrator mostly. And if I want to do something specific in Photoshop, I, I don't really often remember how to do it. Now I, I could Google it, but there's so many different ways to do something. So if I find a way that works, yeah. I better be writing those things down and putting it in the recipe box. Uh, I just got a screen sharing, a screen recording program, OBS, for my computer. I'll use it, but not so much. I need to write those steps down, mm -hmm. put them in my recipe box, mm -hmm. so that every time I go to do something, I don't have to think about it again. I mean, That's I don't have to search so for it again. That's so smart. I have things all the time that I'm like, oh my gosh, how do I do that? Or yeah, 
And sometimes I'll save something, but I'm usually saving it digitally and I don't, it's not organized. So I can't remember where it is. Sometimes you can search on the computer by word and find it, but how cool just to have it in a little recipe box. Getting a habit of that. It's just, yeah, Yeah. just be great. I, I highly recommend it. Oh, awesome. Well, this has been really fun, Paula, and we could go on and on, but um, let's repeat where listeners can find you online. And I'll put that on the webpage in the show notes as well. So your blog is bookzumpa, that's with two O's, Z-O-O-M-P-A dot wordpress.com. And then um, you mentioned your Etsy shop. Do you know yeah, that? Or if you just- I think, it's, I think if you put in bookzumpa and Etsy, Okay. It'll come up. I actually looked for something last night. I put in Paula Creek and Etsy. Okay. So I, I try to put my name as a tag in the things that I sell there. And that's been a sort of a new thing for me. I never focused on selling anything, which I, you know, I just, it's just never been a focus of mine. But now I actually have the time to play around with ideas, just put them up there on Etsy and see what happens. And it's actually been fun. Um, there, there's two things I, I, do want to mention that another place that people can find me and I should give this more airtime than we have time for, because it's been such an important thing for me. A number of years ago, I started uh, hanging out on Twitter a little bit mm-hmm. and it was a good time to start. And I don't know if there's not a good time to start, but it was definitely a good time to start because I found a math community there. And this is when I was really become a math community of teachers Math, who are also mathematicians and also mathematicians who are just mathematicians. And it's been a, it's been wonderful because it's, it's helped me grow mathematically. Uh-huh. It's helped me grow uh, in, in my teaching. And now there seems to be a very strong math art community. So, uh-huh growing there too. Like you do your flaunted Fridays on your blog, which by the way, I absolutely adore that you're doing that because I am always craving community. Yeah. And so I always try to put something on there no matter what, you know, um, yeah, because I'm doing that. that's on Facebook. Yeah. That's on Facebook, your flaunted Fridays. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. You should tell people how to find that easily because it's it's a wonderful thing. We should definitely be supporting each other and seeing it, what you said there's doing and applauding each other. Um, but there's this hashtag that's the uh, this woman Clarissa Grande 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 uh, started that's called Math Art Monday. Oh. So if you if you look at if you put the hashtag Math Art Maths, this is originates in England. So they put the S at the end of math. So it's Maths Art Monday. That hashtag, you will see, you will be rewarded with all this beautiful work that people are doing in art and with math. And it is just a wonderful community of people applauding each other uh, with art and math. So and a place to find me on Twitter is Paula is the handle at, you know, the A Paula Krieg. Okay. And that's probably the place where I'm most active, like on a daily basis. Right. Uh, I, think I, I must follow you because I don't go on Twitter ever, but I'm yeah. seeing Paula. 
Bella Creek posted this, that, and the other. I get emails. Yeah. Oh, take take me off of your notifications. You can just go find me when you want to, but don't don't let yourself be notified every time. That's crazy. Uh, that's crazy. There's. I wish there was a. I wish there was more of a community like that of artists. And I don't know why it happened to evolve on Twitter. That's interesting. Yeah. But it's it's not it's not like Twitter's like a math place, but it just did evolve and I'm so grateful. Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful for it. So yeah, there, it, there is a lot of value to community online. I found that too, when I moved to Colorado, um, mm -hmm. I knew a lot of paper people around the world. And here I was in this small rural community. And uh, I, I thought, well, I'm going to connect more online and I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, you've really been a model of that, which has been wonderful. And that, and and you said that we did meet a long time ago, and I said that we did meet a long time ago. But there were years and years and years where we were not in touch with each other at all. That's right. And then I believe you found me, or I found you. I don't remember. But the fact that we were able to uh, reconnect mm -hmm. online in a in a vibrant way, in a way that that that. Uh, is good and um it's been it's been a real delight and i'm so glad that you that you have led the way in this community to to do that well so. thank you yeah and so let me just mention that paula is uh contributing a project in my next book will which will be out in the fall of 2021 fingers crossed a, a a one sheet wonder I like to call all the projects in that book. Um, and I'll, that's all I'll say about it right now. And then she's also going to be part of the paper year, which is uh, I'm taking that online this coming year and listeners will hear about that in the, in the show notes and in the, in the middle section of this podcast. So um, yeah, I look forward to sharing your work. Yeah. It is a delight to be connected with you uh, professionally. It's really wonderful what you're doing. So thank okay. you. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, paper friends. Did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at helenhebertstudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com to receive my e-newsletter. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed it, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps other people find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Paper Talk, where you can find out more about them, subscribe to the series via iTunes, and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. I'll talk to you soon. Reason.